good evening or morning or whatever. We're just glad you're here. On Sunday nights, we're studying the book of John, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, look with us to the book of John, chapter 19. The book of John, chapter 19. The first four books of the New Testament, they're called the Gospel. They're telling the Gospel story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most of the materials are the same in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John material is a little different. We very realize John is closer to Jesus. He's been behind the scenes, and he's giving a picture of Jesus as divine. And so now we come to the point where Jesus is going to go to the cross. And so in chapter 19, he's already gone through some of the trials, and he's about to go through some more. So look with me, the book of John, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give slaps in his face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns. And the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and that by law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Jump down to verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so then he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. And they were crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments, made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide who it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. 
after this, knowing that all things had been already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. The jar of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Pray with me. Our Father, no matter how many times we've heard this story, let us see it afresh tonight. Father, my prayer is that we'll never get used to it. That we always will be amazed by it. And Father, we will always understand it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All religions have symbols. Buddhism has the lotus flower. Because it's a wheel shape, it depicts the cycles of birth and death and the emergence of beauty and harmony and, and the muddy waters of chaos. It's their symbol of reincarnation. Judaism adopted the Star of David. You've seen it. It's a hexagram formed by combining two equilateral triangles that speak of God's covenant with David, that his throne would be established forever, and that the Messiah would come from it. Islam is symbolized by the crescent, originally depicting the phases of the moon. It is a symbol to them of sovereignty and the Muslim victory. Now, for the Christian, there are many symbols, believe it or not. We have many, but the most important one, the most prevalent one, is the cross. That is the one we are recognized. I mean, we see crosses in churches. We see crosses in home. We see crosses in jewelry. We see crosses everywhere as a symbol of our faith. But no one, no one in the, in the New Testament would ever think of the cross as a decoration. For them, the cross was something that was horrible. It was a horrible symbol. To have it displayed would have caused people to shudder. It was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of the Roman Empire. It was a symbol of scandal. In fact, the Romans, if you were a nice Roman, you would not even mention the word crucifixion. If you were Jewish, you considered it a curse because the Bible says curse is the man who hangs on a tree. It was a terrifying way to die. It was a going against the Roman Empire physically, emotionally, every way imaginable. The cross was to be avoided. And yet, that is our symbol for our faith. Because if Jesus had not gone to the cross, we would have no faith. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, there is no Christianity. Everything that has taken place from John chapter 1 is going to this point right now in John chapter 19 when our Lord is going to go to a cross to die. John takes us to the cross. He gives us a picture of what's happened. Now, he doesn't tell us everything because, again, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They give us some information. John is giving the information that he wants to give to us to show us who Jesus is. And so let's look at this passage. It begins with the rejection of the king, beginning in verse 1 and following. Now, you have to understand, Jesus is going to be rejected by his people. We saw last week, we talked about the illegal trials of Jesus. There were many trials. I don't know if you kept up with them. John kind of put two of them the same together. But Jesus went through six different trials. The first three were Jewish trials. 
Annas in, in chapter 18, the high priest, and then the Sanhedrin. The last three were handled by the Romans. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate, the governor of Judea. After intensive interrogation, he says, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's not guilty. I find no fault in him at all in the book of John chapter 18, verse 38. And yet, they wanted him to remain. And then Pilate found out that he came from Galilee. He said, well, that's not even my jurisdiction. Pilate is a politician. He said, well, that goes to Herod. And so he sends him to Herod. Herod listened to him and said, I'm sending you back to Pilate. And so now he comes back. So there's three different trials. John just really puts it in one. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Now, Pilate was not a kind, nice man. We looked at it last week. He is a very harsh man, but he could look at Jesus and say, this man does not deserve death. So what does he do? Well, look at verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, normally, scourging was preliminary to a crucifixion. Usually, this weakened the person so they would die faster on the crucifixion. But also, you would do the scourging after the conviction. You would do the scourging after the conviction. Guess what? This is illegal. They didn't do it before. They didn't do it. They did it before the sentencing, not after the sentencing. The scourging was just basically torture. You had these whips. These whips that had leather strips, and at the end of each strip, you either had pieces of bone or pieces of metal. And you would tie the man hands up uh, above his head. You had two men scourging. From the, one goes from the heel to the neck. The other goes from the neck to the heel. And you would whip the man. And what would happen, the, the metal balls would tenderize the flesh. The bone would rip it open. You also would have a Roman soldier to the side with a bucket of salt water. If you pass out, he would throw the salt water to wake you up. It was a sign of torture. How long can you do this? As long as you wanted. These Romans were used to it. They enjoyed it. Romans had, the Jews had a law. You couldn't whip anyone more than 39 lashes. Roman had no such law. They could do it as long as they desired. It was part of the torture, part of the, that, the torture that Jesus is going through. Notice what else they did. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. They took some thorns and made it into a, a crown. And basically, think of a skull cap. And they placed it on his head. And they didn't place it gently on his head. They bear down. So now blood is running through his eyes. They, they put a purple robe on him. They were mocking him. Probably this was one of the soldiers' uh, coats. And purple was the, the color of a king of that day. And so they were making fun of him. Verse 3, and they began to come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. John made sure we understand that slaps, that's an insult. And that day, if you slapped a man, they were saying, you're not important for me to ball up my fist. And they're torturing Jesus. They're making fun of Jesus. They're mocking Jesus. The Roman soldiers looked at Jesus as a pretender to the throne of Israel. And they despised him. So what happens? Look at verse 4. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate has this strategy. When Jesus came out, he was unrecognizable. He'd been beaten. He'd been tortured. 
One thing the Romans would do in that day, they would tear off, if a man had a beard, they would tear off half the beard because that was an insult to the Jews. Jesus is coming out. He is beaten and bloodied and bruised. He's bleeding profusely. And Pilate says, behold the man. (laughs) This is the guy you're scared of? This is the guy that you're saying he thinks he's the king of the Jews? He's nothing compared to the Roman army. He's innocent. You've made a mistake. Behold the man. He's just an ordinary man. Verse 6. When the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, crucify, crucify. In the language of this day, it means they were chanting it together. It's a crowd, probably started by the chief priest. Crucify, 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 crucify. Like in a ball game, people are chanting the same thing over and over. It wasn't a, it wasn't a mob yelling a different thing. It was the same crowd saying it so distinctly you heard they were together, chanting each word, crucify, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no fault in him. You, you, you kill him. I haven't found any fault in him. Guys, I'm not going to do this. You take him. Now, now, by the way, legally they couldn't crucify him. They didn't have the right to do that. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Whoa. This is the first time they mentioned this to Pilate. They said he said he was the king. They had not even mentioned this idea of blasphemy, which, by the way, the Romans didn't care about. Now we are getting to the real reason. This is the reason they wanted Jesus dead. He claimed he was God. They're saying, we can't crucify him. We don't have that right. We don't have the authority to do that. You need to do it because he claimed he was a king, and not only that, he claimed he was God. And Pilate began to get a little scared here. We don't know why. Later on, we have some clues, but right now, he, he, he realizes, is this true? Because as a Roman, he's thinking, maybe this is a demigod. I don't know. This is something the Romans would have investigated. And they're saying, you cannot let him go. He has claimed he is God. When Pilate, verse 8, heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Verse 13, Pilate has interviewed Jesus some more. He brought Jesus out again. Verse, six, verse 14, and he says to the Jews, behold your king. Whoa. He says, behold your king earlier. Now, then he said, behold your, the, the man. Now he's saying again, this is your king. Pilate realizing there's something about this Jesus. He can't put his finger on it. But he goes back to the Jews and says, look, I've interviewed him. This is your king. They cried out, verse 15, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, then what shall I, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. No Jew in his right mind would have said this. It would be like an Alabama fan saying war eagle, okay? This is the most ridiculous thing imaginable. They hated the Romans. They hated the Caesar They did not want to serve Caesar. They didn't want to pay taxes to the Romans. And here they are, look at one another. Hey, we only have one king, it's Caesar. This is how much they hate Jesus. And they totally rejected the king. And then in verse 17, we find the crucifixion of the king. 
Verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out and bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. And there they crucified him and him with two other men on either side and Jesus in between. They're going to crucify him. As I said earlier, without a doubt, the worst form of capital punishment in the history of mankind is crucifixion. By the way, that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of experts who've studied torture and capital punishment. The whole process is inhumane. Basically, you die of suffocation. What they would do, they would take you, again, after the scourging, weaken the body, they would take you, they would place your hands on the cross, they would drive the nails into your wrist. Had to, had to be on the wrist. If you did the hand, you just rip the hand off. And they would do it in the wrist and those bones. Then they would drive the nails in the, in the foot of the cross, and then they would lift you up. You had a little seat, a, very, a little block of wood on the cross where you could kind of sit on so you could breathe. But what happens as you're doing this, you, you start losing oxygen and you start going down, you suffocate. And you have to keep lifting yourself up. Every time you lift yourself up, it, it's painful. And some people actually survive sometimes up to nine days. And if you wanted to hurry up the, this process, you break their legs. And if you break their legs, they couldn't lift themselves up. This is a, a horrendous way to die. And so now they're taking Jesus there. And while they're taking him, John mentions in verse 23 that they crucified him. They took his outer garments made of four parts, a part to every soldier and also a tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one place. And, and, and so John is saying why, they're, why Jesus is hanging there. They were gambling for his clothing. Because usually the Roman soldiers received the clothing. And they divided his garments. The, the Greek word there is plural, but Jesus, it means more than just one garment. What, what he's talking about, he had the outer robe, but also that, that word garment would imply the, his robe, I mean his sandals, uh, his robe, and maybe his head covering. So there have been four pieces of that, and they divided among them. And then he also had the tunic, and that, that was seamless. And so they said, we don't want to tear this up. Let, let's gamble for it. And they threw lots for it. As the Bible said in the Old Testament, that they would gamble for his clothing. Everything is according to Scripture. Now, here's Jesus. He's on the cross. Now, as you're carrying the cross, two ways to carry the cross. Most of the time, you only carry the top portion. Usually, they would tie your hands to the top portion, and you would carry the cross down Main Street. By the way, you realize if you're like this and you fall down, you cannot protect your face. You can't protect yourself. Sometimes you would carry the whole cross, but very rarely would you do that. Usually you carry the top portion. Jesus was so tired he couldn't even do it. We learned in one of the other gospels he had to get, they had to get someone else to help him carry up there. Then they would lay him down on that, that piece of wood. They would nail him, and then they would hoist him up. And now there he is. On the cross, Jesus makes seven statements. John gives us three of them. Each statement John gives gives us an insight to what's happening in the story. The first statement is found in verse 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. 
It's maybe the most touching scene in the Bible. Here's Jesus. He's been tortured all night. He's been been carrying that cross. He's on that cross. Every word you say on a cross hurts because you have to take a breath and lift yourself up to speak. Every word is important. And Jesus took the time to talk to his mother. Woman, behold your son. Now, why did he call her woman? Well, again, that's a term of endearment. Remember, uh, in the scripture, I mean, you say today you get slapped. (laughs) Woman, what are you talking about? Don't do that, okay? But in that day, it was a term of endearment. And according to the Jewish law, remember, a person who was crucified was accursed. This was an embarrassment to the family. Meantime, the family would not come to a crucifixion. They would be dishonored. People would, would push them aside. Oh, that's an embarrassment. Your, your son was crucified? You must be cursed too. And there's Mary at the cross. And what a journey. What a journey Mary's been through. I mean, as a teenage girl, an angel came and said, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And through her life, think of all the things that took place in her life. No one believed that story. Her reputation was put in question. Then they had to travel to Bethlehem when she was pregnant. Then they couldn't find a place to stay. Then they couldn't find a bed. Then after the birth of Jesus, they had to leave the country. They had to go to Egypt out of fear. Then her son grows up, and he is despised by men. Apparently, her husband Joseph died at an early age. She watched her other sons reject Jesus, and now Jesus is on the cross. I mean, can you even imagine what she's thinking? I mean, that the brow that she used to kiss is now bloody from thorns. The hands that she used to hold have nails driven through them. She would comfort him as a child when he would cry and hold him, but now by law she couldn't even touch him. And Jesus takes the time to tell her, Behold the Son. And then he looks to the disciple who he loved. That's John. And he says to John, Behold thy mother. Jesus is dying on the cross, and he's taking care of his family. He's taking care of his family to be sure that someone is going to take care of his mother. Well, why not his brothers? They're not believers at this time. He couldn't entrust them. He turns to his very best friend, the closest friend that he had, the one that sat by him at the Lord's Supper. He said, behold, your mother. Take care of her, John. I trust you. I love you, John. Take care of my mom. The second statement he makes As he's hanging on the cross, in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty, or I thirst. 
This is about six hours, if you figure it out. This is about six hours on the cross. This statement is, is, the, is the shortest statement from the cross, but in some ways is, is the most revealing. I mean, you think about it. Here, here is the maker of heaven and earth with parched lips. Here we have the Lord of glory desiring a drink of water. Here we have the almighty God who could command the rains to fall down. Asking help for men because he was thirsty. Why would John put this in here? I think to show us the reality of the humanity of Christ. Jesus was human as well as divine. Author Pink said, the Lord Jesus was the very God of the very God. He was also the very man of the very man. You deny the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ is to rob yourself of a Savior with a real body who understands us. Jesus came here. He was born. He grew. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was exhausted. He went through pain. He went through death. He understands us. Now, I know there are people out there today that want to do away with the humanity of Jesus, but you cannot. He was fully God and fully man. And John is also fighting a heresy. We looked at this the very first time, first sermon in this series. There was a group of people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics says the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. And because of that, they would not accept that Jesus was actually of the flesh. They said that's impossible. The flesh is evil. He has to be a spirit. And John is saying this. No, Jesus was thirsty. On the cross, he said, I thirst. Jesus entered the world as a baby. He grew as a child. We find him as a boy asking questions. As a man, he was weary in his body. He suffered. He hungered. He slept. He wept. He prayed. He rejoiced. He groaned. And now on the cross, he says, I thirst. Shows us the reality of his humanity. But also it shows us the reliability of Scripture. Because you, you notice how John said it in verse 28. He said, Jesus, knowing all things, had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture. Jesus said this to fulfill prophecy. That prophecy is found in the book of Psalm, chapter 69, verse 21. It says, they gave me a gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You see, the fulfillment was not in the cry of Christ. The fulfillment was in the response of the men. That's what they gave him. Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. And by the way, if you go back and look at Psalm chapter 69, there are so many other prophecies about the cross. He says in verse 3, they hated me without a cause. Seven, I was born with reproach. Eight, I became a stranger to the brethren. 17 through 20, I cried out to God. He's fulfilling the Scripture. More than 20 times in the Gospel of John, you find that phrase, that it might be fulfilled. John is showing us that everything that happened to Christ had already been prophesied in the Old Testament. So why was Jesus born in Bethlehem and not Jerusalem? Because Micah chapter 5 verse 2 said it was going to happen there. I mean, why did Joseph and Mary had to go to Egypt? Because Hosea said it was going to, the Messiah would go to Egypt. Why did Jesus minister in Galilee? Well, Isaiah chapter 9 said he was going to minister in Galilee. Over and over again, we see the prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament, and John keeps telling us over and over, he did this to fulfill Scripture. And so here's Jesus on that cross. He's thirsty. He shows us his pain, and it reminds us that he identifies with us. And when your body is racked in pain, he understands. 
When you're misunderstood, misjudged, or misrepresented, he understands. When your friends turn their back and run away from you when you need them the most, he understands. When you're in darkness, he understands. And then in verse 30, we find the last statement. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Three words in the English. One word in the Greek. This is not the despairing cry of a martyr. This is the cry of our Lord. To tell us die. It is finished. To tell us die. It is finished. This, this is a cry of completion. This, this Greek word is very important. In, in that day, you used it in the, in the legal and in the financial circles. In that day, it was very important. If you were brought up on charges, a Roman judge would pronounce you guilty. And he would have this, this, this prescription. He would write on a piece of, of paper your, your crime, and on the other side, he would write out the, the payment. You know, five years in prison, three years in prison, you know, whatever it may be. And then he would have that piece of paper on the door of the prison. So when people walked by, they could see your crime. When the person was put in prison, that certificate was there. When you've done your time, you would go back to the judge. He would take that certificate, and then on the side would have the time you spent. He would write, to tell us I, it is finished. It means paid in full. Now, you could take that certificate, and you would carry it around, and people would say, I thought you were in jail. No, it's been paid in full. I'm a free man. I have the piece of paper. I have the document. I am free. I have, I have paid the price. I am free. I, the debt has been paid. Same thing if you borrowed money, and they would give you a, a certificate. This is how much money you owe. When you paid it back, they would give you a, a, that certificate and say, to tell us I, it is finished, paid in full. Jesus is on the cross. His last words in John, it is finished, is paid in full. And he does it in the, in the Greek language, it's called the perfect tense. And all that means is it's something that happens now that will be forever and ever and ever. What Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, paid in full, is continuing on and on and on and on and on, and it never stops. What happened then is, ha- is still happening today. It is finished, paid in full. What does it mean? The plan is done. What plan? Oh, the plan of the cradle of the cross and the crown. That's the plan. The plan was for the Son of God to be born by a virgin to live a sinless life. Again, you you take away the virgin birth, the cross is a joke. You need both of those events. And so that's the cradle. He came, he was born. He lived a sinless life. And then he would die for us on that cross for the world. And so Jesus had all the sins of the world placed upon him on that day, and he paid it in full. The sacrifice is complete. That's what he said. It is finished. It is finished that every obstacle between God and man is gone. It it is finished that every demand of the law has been satisfied. It is finished that every part of what Christ has come to do has been completed. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. It's been paid for. And then John says in verse 30, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I never, I never realized this until a couple of years ago. 
It literally means Christ delivered his spirit. I always took it that, no, Christ died. No, he delivered his spirit. Even on the cross, death had no power unto Christ until his own choice to give his life. Jesus dismissed his spirit. Jesus predicted he would lay down his life voluntarily and he would raise it up again. And John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Death was on his terms. And Jesus died on the cross. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't passed out. He was dead. No heart rate, no breath, no brain waves. He's dead. And next Sunday, we're going to see the greatest news imaginable. He didn't stay dead long because he's the Son of God. Would you stand and bow your heads? Jesus willingly, deliberately surrendered his life for us. Will you surrender your life to him? If you're watching online tonight and you'd like to give your life to Christ, if you would just text the word today at 270-398-5005, and a minister will give you a call. If you're here tonight and you've never surrendered your life, will you do so tonight? If we begin to sing, if you just come to the front, talk to me or one of the ministers near the front, and whatever decision God has laid on your heart, will you surrender to Jesus? Our Father, speak to us now with clarity. And let us follow our Lord everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.